Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted September 23, 2016, we turn again to WPJ Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick for a summary of global responses to the big question feature, What Lessons from History Keep Being Forgotten, in the new WPJ Fall 2016 issue, History's Ghosts. We'll also point out top features in the upcoming WPJ Fall issue. Listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. <laughs> Student demonstrators in Chile clashed violently yet again with police earlier this year over education reform, a conflict that has only grown since it began in 2011. And it may well symbolize the failure of a reinstated democratic government to learn the lessons of repression from 17 years of military rule, the need to institutionalize channels for peaceful protest and public participation more generally. What Lessons from History Keep Being Forgotten is the headline on the big question feature in the New World Policy Journal Fall 2016 issue, cover theme History's Ghosts. To review some of the answers from around the globe for this podcast, I spoke again recently with WPJ Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick. Yafa, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me. Let's stay with Chile to get started. Who is our contributor from there? Our contributor is Sofia Donoso, who's a researcher at Espacio Publico in Chile and actually the co-editor of the forthcoming book, Social Movements in Chile, Organization, Trajectories, and Political Impact. One would think the harsh repression of long military rule uh, that produced a return to democracy would naturally lead to greater citizen participation beyond elections. How does Donoso explain why that did not happen? So the uh, elected government officials were from the center-left government at the end of um, military rule, and they really believed that excessive populist pressure had contributed to the breakdown of democracy and actually led to the coup in 1973. So they basically reinforced an aversion to citizen participation. They didn't create incentives or institutional spaces for people to gather or protest. They had a very cautious approach and promoted gradual reform and, generally speaking, built consensus internally without a lot of public input. As participation in political parties and unions declined, distrust in government institutions grew. Talk about the law passed in 2011 to deal with the problem. In 2011, the Civic Participation Act was passed, and it was a way to engage citizens in public administration and to facilitate the creation of formal organizations so that they could participate in government. It basically sought to create opportunities for them to participate both at the decision-making level when public policies were being made and also at the implementation level. Also spurring social mobilization in 2011 was the outbreak of those education protests. Say more about uh, how that student action began, how it grew, and the public debate that has followed. 
It had a rather exciting beginning. Um, in June 2011, students gathered in front of the Presidential Palace and actually recreated the dance scene from Michael Jackson's Thriller video. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the symbolism showing how Chile's education system had essentially turned them into zombies. But the real issue is uh, they wanted more direct state participation both at the high school level and the university level. So currently in Chile, only 45% of high school students and study in what we would consider a traditional public school, um, and most universities are private, and there haven't been new public universities created since the end of the military time. But it expanded beyond education. There was a general feeling of deep discontent about the high levels of inequality that existed in Chile as a whole. And so you had environmentalists and feminists and indigenous groups that have since joined, um, and so this country that once did not have much of a culture of protest has a bit more today. A series of corruption scandals since the center-left regained power has further deteriorated public trust, but also, again, prompted more efforts towards transparency. Yeah, so the government is continuing to try uh, to increase civic participation and also increase its sets of transparency. Um, and one way it's doing that is introducing public financing of political parties and granting the public in Chile access to the budgets for each public service provided. So in that way, Chileans can actually hold politicians accountable for their public spending. Uh, and earlier this year, a presidential commission was put on the case. To do what, and how is it working out? A presidential commission was tasked with basically revising the implementation of the 2011 law we were talking about, the Civic Participation Act, and proposing better ways to enhance engagement. Uh, it proposed a series of citizen dialogues to discuss a content of a new constitution to replace the one that was left over by the military regime. Despite introducing those dialogues, though, there's been limited public involvement in the initiative, showcasing that despite this uh, you know, surge in protests around students and inequality issues, there still isn't a huge culture of political participation. Um, the cu current efforts to address distrust and encourage citizen engagement are important first steps, but the scale of the challenge is going to take more than just a civic participation act or a citizen dialogue. Politicians are going to have to push much further on that. And it's not entirely clear if either the government or the people really have the will to push forward. By contrast to the government of Chile, at least trying or appearing to try to revive popular participation it had forgotten about, is the government of Venezuela. It's working hard to repress a particularly painful part of its past, large-scale political detention, even as millions face it in the present for protesting persistent shortages of food and other basics and demanding the recall of President Nicolas Maduro. Uh, who reported on the situation there for the new fall issue? For that, we had um, Alfredo Romero, and he's quite an impressive guy. He's a human rights lawyer. He's the executive director of the NGO uh, Venezuelan Penal Forum. He's a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he still manages to be a lecturer in law at Universidad Central de Venezuela. What statistics does he cite on political detentions in the recent past and so far even this year? So going back to 2014, he says uh, Venezuela is currently detaining 6,000 political prisoners and 86 of whom have been arrested this year already. And what is the system by which the government denies political detentions? So it's the thin veneer of a legal system that the Venezuelan regime has created and 
essentially allows it to deny the existence of political prisoners, because while the government claims that judicial authorities are autonomous, they are not. Uh, the ruling party controls the court and really uses the judiciary as a weapon for political persecution. The piece makes an interesting point about how globalization, as Ilk Maduro and other autocrats of the left and right, uh, maintain diplomatic support and create favorable international media images. Say more about that. Instead of reducing state repression, globalization has actually allowed these regimes to form kind of these informal alliances that further autocracy. So you have countries like China, Russia, Iran, they've all internationalized their authoritarianism by pumping financial aid and investment into developing countries. And Venezuela has done that on its own scale by subsidizing oil in the Caribbean and Latin American countries. And as a result of those subsidies, those countries then reimburse Venezuela by providing diplomatic support. So it's no coincidence that Venezuela has a hot spot on the UN Human Rights Council. But it extends beyond that, and it, as you mentioned, goes into media. So a lot of these regimes also are quite effective in turning their media networks into propaganda machines. So you think of China's CCTV or Russia's RT or Venezuela's Telesur, and they create a great veil to the strategies of repression that are actually happening. So it's why you have Venezuela having a toilet paper shortage on the one hand, but also managing two satellites in space and having a third one in the works for 2017. Wow. The contribution from Turkey warns against leaders who selectively use, misuse, or abuse key elements of national history. Who wrote that? So that piece is written by Andrew Finkel, who's an Istanbul-based journalist and co-founded P24, which is an initiative to support independent Turkish media. He draws a telling comparison between the aspect of Turkish history that excited the country's early Republican leaders and the fixation of what he calls its current lot, presumably the henchmen of uh, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Talk about that. So Finkel explains that one factor that makes repeating history more likely is when rulers try to control the transmission of the past through force or disruption, or as you phrased it, by using and abusing history to serve their political objectives. So in the case of the early Turkish Republicans, they kind of reveled in this, quote, discovery of the pre-Hellenic civilizations of Anatolia. They were bringing Turkey back to its former glory. And Erdogan and company are trying to recreate the glory of the Ottoman and Islam uh, Islamic empires today in the same manner. Of course, continuing tensions involving Turkey's neighbors in the Middle East, Russia, and Eastern Europe have given it a new strategic importance. Uh, but the contributor fears that imperial memories may work against Turkey solving its growing internal problems. Say more about that and his view of history's place in policy more generally. Despite Turkey's tensions with its neighbors, uh, many things remain depressingly the same in Turkey because Turkey has been really slow to answer some of the big questions it faces. For example, you know, can the evolving demands of its large Kurdish population really be resolved with rigid constitutional and political frameworks that don't leave space for Kurdish participation? Can Turkey ever understand its history in a way that gives a prospect of reconciliation with the Armenians or even with large non-Sunni populations within its own country? Um, Turkey's inability to really come to terms with some of the big questions in its own history, to learn from it, to not repeat it, it ties into Finkel's larger understanding of history because he says that societies are highly selective in what they absorb from their past and are prone to abusing and 
using their history accordingly. And so the bigger lesson for Turkish society is to really look carefully at the current leadership claiming this historical mandate and to question how they're using and abusing facts to further that uh, aim. An interesting contradictory answer to the fall issue's big question comes from Burundi, where the problem seems to be the persistence of history. Who sent in that analysis? Uh, so that piece was shared with us by Roland Rogero, who's a writer and journalist for a variety of publications, including Iwako Literary Pages, Take Part in Jim Berry Magazine, but he's also notably the first Burundian to have his novel translated into English. <laughs> he says the nation's existential problem is symbolized by having two national flags. Yeah, so in the early 1990s, uh, President Pierre Biyoyo introduced a second national flag to symbolize national unity. But the older one, and it's still the official flag, already represented that unity. It symbolizes uh, the Hutu, the Twa, and the Tutsi. Specifically, he says Burundians have over-internalized a history of divisions. Along what lines and with what impact on current consciousness despite the 1993 Arusha peace accords? Burundi's history is based on divisions, whether it's Hutu versus Tutsi, Burundi versus the rest of the world, good Hutu versus bad Tutsi bad Hutu, educated versus not educated, and at various points in history, being on the wrong side of one of these rifts could get you killed. So after more than 40 years of kind of juggling this us versus them split, Burundians have become doublers. They're unconsciously recreating these destructive splits. And even after the Arusha Accords in 93, where Burundians thought they would solve the issue of violence between specifically Hutus and Tutsis, they haven't. They haven't dealt with the more underlying issue, the transmission of memories within families and between groups that really perpetuates these reflexes of discrimination and destruction. And he says the image of his people as calm, kind, and generous masks a, a really nasty psychological reality. Yeah, because Burundians from the time they're very young are taught to value introversion, to not really ever say what they're truly feeling so they can give off a very friendly disposition but be thinking something entirely different. And so the inability for Burundians to talk openly and honestly has created this kind of what he calls a country of landmines, right, generously laid in the form of rumors and accusations and attacks. And it's really difficult to move past these landmines and dangerous divisions when no one talks openly about them. Perhaps the most contrarian uh, response of all, uh, that a patient understanding of history is actually not that useful in the urgency of current policymaking, comes from Great Britain. Who was the author there? So our author was John Bew. He's a professor of history and foreign policy in a very cool department at King's College London, the War Studies Department. Um, and he's also the author of the book, Realpolitik, A History. Bew says a good starting point is to view the past as a source of wisdom rather than revelation. Where does he go from there? So he writes that history doesn't provide the way science might fundamental or internal truths. It's not a scientific discipline. Um, and he cites a diplomatic historian, Paul Schroeder, who I think says it best, where uh, he writes, there's a danger that we presume, quote, its lessons and insights lie on the surface for anyone to pick up so that we can go at history like a looter at an archaeological site. <laughs> different to context and deeper meaning. Uh, in fact, he says what we may need is not more history, but what he calls historicism, by which he means what? 
historicism gives us a way of thinking about political or intellectual challenges that confront us. Um, this approach doesn't regard the past, again, as a source of immutable lessons or formulas. It's not scientific, but it trains the eye to look beyond that surface, to dig a little deeper, to search for the context, the complexity, the contingency under which situations and events arise. And the advantage to it is that it really doesn't know political affiliation. Everyone can use it. So you can be a Marxist who stresses, you know, socioeconomics of power or a Burkean conservative um, who warns against, you know, overdosing on rationalism. And you can both use this deeper digging form of historicism to make sense of the past. But he also says historicism can go too far. In what ways and leading to what conclusion? In the search for greater context and greater complexity, historicism can lead to over caution, it can lead to dangerous relativism, to an overemphasis on empiricism, um, or you know, an overly assertive assistance on what the real truth is. In other words, you can get so stuck in the weeds and fixated on the details uh, that you, you don't draw the wider conclusions. But I will say, you know, despite some of the dangers of historicism, he also writes, it's really the best way to, and the best education for those who aspire to change the world, to really achieve the, the most nuanced understanding of what's around them and what's come before them. Yafa, thanks as always. Thank you for having me. World Policy Journal Managing Editor Yafa Frederick gave us a summary of global responses to the big question feature, what lessons from history keep being forgotten, in the new WPJ Fall 2016 issue, History's Ghosts. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on Ethiopia's original sin, the Oromo tragedy, on Canada's repressive Indian residential schools, and on the decline of sovereignty in the Arab world by noted Beirut-based author and journalist Rami Khoury. And listen next week when our podcast will feature former BBC and NPR China correspondent Louisa Lim on Beijing's policy of silencing the echoes of Tiananmen. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yafa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.